You know, sometimes I start sermons with a cute story or something funny to, you know, sort of grab us and orient us to the subject. The subject today is a lot more serious, and, and I know it's something that pertains to so many people in this room. And so I, I just want to talk for a minute about what we're talking about. And we're, we're talking about trials and difficulties and those things that challenge our faith, those things that, that make it hard to trust God sometimes. And we've been talking about trust the first half of Isaiah those things that make it sometimes make us question whether God's there. I just, I just have a question. How many of you have gone through some sort of trials in 2016? So no one. <laughs> I see the people with two hands up. <laughs> yeah, this is just one year, right? And, and we can look back. We get to the end of the year and we start to look back. And, and I know we, we can... We, we can see all the trials and the things that we've gone through and the struggles. And I know some, many in this room are going through it right now. And there's, there's struggles right now. We come to Christmas time and all this talk of hope and joy and cheer. And sometimes we wake up in the morning and we just don't feel like any of it. We have, we have a word from Isaiah, from God through Isaiah this morning for that. See, trials... Are, are, are times that can make us question, like I said, our beliefs can make us feel alone, can make us feel abandoned, can make us feel isolated from community around us. So what do we do with trials? How do we, how do we correspond or, or relate trials that we experience in this world to a God of love and righteousness and care while we live in this Genesis 3 fallen world? As we look at trials, as we look at struggles, the things we go through, there's really three major reasons we see in Scripture that, that God allows us to go through these things. And, and I start with this before we get into the text because the text is dealing with one of those reasons, but that's not the reason everyone experiences trials. We live in a fallen world. We live in the results of this fallen world. And we know from Scripture sometimes God allows us to go through trials to build our character. In James 1, 2, and 3, it says, Consider all joy, the phrase I hate in that verse, but I love and, and take, take comfort in as well. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various time, kinds. And he goes on to say it builds character. It builds endurance or patience that perfects us as people of God. So sometimes God lets us go through trials, and it is to build our character. Sometimes God lets us go through trials to reveal his character to reveal his glory. Remember the blind man that the disciples and Jesus came across and the disciples said, well, you know, why is he blind? What sin has he committed or his parents committed? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is not because of sin. This is so my glory can be revealed today. And sometimes God allows us to go through trials so his glory can be revealed. We never know who might be affected. And we've asked the question before, is it worth going through just a dark night of the soul if we know that some people are going to be saved and spend eternity with God because they see our response? Oh yeah, bring it on if it brings another soul into eternity. And so sometimes God uses trials for his glory to to advance who he is. And then sometimes the third one, which we often go to, And today we're going to go to sometimes God uses trials as discipline. Sometimes we need a good spanking. And God allows some trials to give that to us. And he's using the trials to to direct us to him and say, return, repent, come to me, trust me, you're doing this on your own. And trials serve as discipline. 
And it could be any of those three. And I think it's dangerous to always assume it's only one of those three. And never never ask the discipline question or, or never ask, how is God using this? If we always go to, oh, woe is me, I'm such a sinner, I've caused this, then there's, there's problems there too. Because God could be doing any of that. And the same God is there for us no matter what reason the trials have come on us. Today, as we look at Israel, we're going to be looking at trials that are caused by disobedience, trials that are caused by rebellion. And this has been a little bit of a challenging passage for me. I love this passage, but part of the justice in me is if you caused it, you get it. You made your bed, now lie in it. See ya, have a nice day. But what's been challenging to me is that's not God. That's not what God did with the children of Israel. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And, and let's, let's just be honest about trials. It's a tough, tough topic. But Isaiah 40 is full of, full of glorious comfort. Glorious comfort as we go through things. Isaiah chapter 40. And we have to understand the history here. And, and we've been studying Isaiah for a couple months now. And chapters 1 through 37 in particular we're all about around 701 A.D., a little bit before that, and Assyria coming. And, and if you remember, Pastor Andrew, when he taught two weeks ago, there was this, this scene in, in 38 and 39 where the Babylonian envoy comes, right? And he just throws open the gates in his pride and says, look at all we have. And they look at all they have and say, we'd like that someday. And Babylon, Babylon about 114 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes out Jerusalem, and takes out the temple, and takes all of that gold away that Hezekiah was so kind to show him. And in three different times coming, took all the, the nobles away, and, and that's where we see Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego are taken into captivity in Babylon. And by the third time, the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins, and the southern kingdom has fallen, and is in exile in Babylon. That's all about 114 years after what we talked about two weeks ago. And, and we know that God had prophesied, and we know from history, he actually did what he said, that the, the southern kingdom, Judah, was going to be in captivity in Babylon in exile there for 70 years. And when we come to chapter 40, Isaiah is still the one writing it. He's writing it 150 or so years before, but he's writing to that people that are sitting in Babylon Wondering what has happened to their life. What has happened to God's promises? Has God forgot us? We're not in the land that he promised us. We're under rule. We're under authority. We're being forced to worship other gods. We can't even pray sometimes. Life stinks for them. Just to put it in common vernacular. That's who the second half of Isaiah was written to. 150 years before, God in his grace and his love and, he, and his sovereignty writes this to comfort his people. And so this is a people in distress, in trial, wondering where God is. Much like we might be. They might be sitting there thinking, oh, the gods of Babylon must be stronger than Yahweh. They won. Or maybe, there's, maybe some are repenting and say, well, my sin has turned God away from me and I've sinned so much that he has abandoned me and will never, never come to my aid again. Maybe some are saying just God doesn't care. God doesn't care. 
those promises God made? Okay, yeah, maybe he keeps his promises, but I blew it. And he's not going to follow through. And so Isaiah 40 speaks to the dark night of the soul. And actually from here, that's the intro to the second half and speaks to the pain and the distress of trials. And he gives hope and he gives light to say this is not all there is. And in chapter 40, we're going to behold the greatness of God, the greatness of his word, and see that he gives strength. If you're in your notes, if you had to, to put the first half of Isaiah and the second half of Isaiah, we're moving from confrontation to consolation. Okay, so if you think of Isaiah 1 through 39, confrontation, and it's been pretty brutal some of the weeks we've studied it, right? It's just boom, boom, boom. Now they're, they're experiencing the results of their sin and we have consolation or comfort. We start in Isaiah 40, verse 1. And it starts by telling what, what, what it's about, the, the grand theme. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And right from the start, you see a God of love, a God of care, even while he's a God of righteous judgment. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And these first 11 verses serve to, to give the promise and remind them of the promises of what God will do. And so point number one, God will deliver. This is forward-looking. God will deliver. Take comfort in the assurance that future deliverance is coming. And I would say that's the same message we have today if we're going through it. Take comfort that future deliverance is coming. God will deliver. Now, right up front, it may not be the way that we expect Him to deliver. And it may not be tomorrow. Because His plans are greater than our plans and His ways are greater than our ways. But he will deliver, even if that means eternity with him with no more tears. And so we see verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And that word for tenderly there is, is like a, a mother with child. And, and we have a lot of babies here. And nursery is, is full. And you see moms with their children. There's just nothing like it. The tenderness and, and the care that a mother has when she's caring for her infant. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem is God's instruction to Isaiah. Man, what happened to the first 39 chapters? The times have changed. The situation has changed. Cry to her that her warfare has ended. Her hardship has ended. Some translations say hard service has ended. The time is almost up, he's saying. Be encouraged. Her warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. And so God in His righteousness acknowledges that this was discipline for their sin. The next phrase, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Some debate about what that means over. The word actually means to fold over. So some, it, sometimes it's used in Scripture of something we can't see. You know, if you fold over a piece of paper, you can't see the backside. Sometimes it's used of that. And so some, some commentators thought, well, this means that we can't quite understand all that God is doing. And that is obviously true in Scripture. But others say that culturally, when, when someone sinned, when someone offended someone else, your recompense, what you paid back, was usually double. And so if you stole $10, you know, owe the person $20 to make up for that in, in, in Hebrew law and in law of the time. And, and so it may be that, whatever it is, it's God saying, it's done, you've paid in full for your sins. 
See, sin has to be pardoned for. There has to be some, some penalty for sin if God is righteous. If God isn't righteous, he can say, ah, don't worry about it. Sin all you want. I forgive you. But no, a righteous God says there has to be a payment for that sin. And so in this case, he's being righteous and saying, you've paid for your sin. Praise God. The future deliverance we're going to see in the second half of Isaiah says that Jesus Christ paid for our sin. And so when we come to Christ, when our sins are completely forgiven, that is not cheap grace. That is not saying, oh, God just ignores our sins. That is God saying, I took your sin and the penalty was paid by my son on the cross in brutal form, but it was paid in full. And so the righteous God thinks of pardon, thinks of payment for sin, and that this is is taken care of. And so these first two verses really set the tone, comfort and pardon. And then we have three voices that come up in the rest of these 11 verses. And it's helpful to look at each of them quickly. Verses 3 through 5 are the first voice. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the first voice is saying, God's coming. The, the king is coming. The deliverer is coming. Get ready for him. And, and one of the traditions is if you knew, especially in Babylonian Empire, if you knew the king was coming, they would send out delegations and, and they would work on the roads and do some repair. They didn't have the nice concrete or asphalt that, that we have. Yes, we have some potholes. Nothing compared to if the rain washes out your dirt road, Right? And so they'd go and they'd fix the potholes. You don't want your king's chariot going boom and, and falling apart. And so one of the ways they honored was to prepare and make the road smooth for him to come so he could come and speak to you. Now we know that this wasn't being used literally because they were in captivity in Babylon. They didn't care about the king of Babylon. They didn't rush out and make the path straight for the king of Babylon. But what Isaiah is saying here is do this spiritually. How are you preparing your heart to receive God? Are we, are we every day repenting of sin, dealing with sin, those huge potholes that keep us from relationship with God? And are we saying, okay, God, I'm ready to hear your word. I'm ready to experience your deliverance. And so really this is talking about repentance. For them, repentance where they were at so that way at the end of exile, God could bring them back into the land. But this is an incredible passage that was looking forward to a fuller, a fuller redemption. And we see this passage quoted. Does this passage sound familiar? It's quoted in every gospel, all four. Not too many passages are quoted in all four gospels. But it's quoted in all four gospels, one of them twice, about John the Baptist. And it's saying, yes, you, you had a temporary, a partial deliverance from Babylon. You went back to the land, but now you're under Roman rule. Congratulations. And, and they're like, no, this isn't deliverance. And we know that spiritually God was using this as prophecy to say, no, John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And again, John the Baptist didn't go fill any potholes. What was his message? Repent. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And so making paths straight here, preparing the way, is repenting 
and allowing God to work in our lives. See, if we have sin we haven't dealt with, it, it, you can come here all you want, you're not going to get much out of it because we're living in sin. But if we deal with sin and repent, we now are preparing God to speak to us. That's the first voice. The second voice in verses 6 through 8, voice number 2, let's read that. The voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And it's probably God talking to Isaiah. I said, what shall I cry? And God says, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And voice number two is all about God's word and his promises enduring forever. If you're sitting in a house in Babylon working your knuckles bare every day, wondering where God is, how comforting would it be to, to, to know his word will last forever? His promises are bigger and greater than the temporary circumstances I'm in. I can trust God. And so voice number two is a reminder that everything is temporary except the word of God. We can trust it. We can trust it. And then the third voice of comfort here, go on, verses 9 through 11, go on to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that word for behold, we talked about it a couple of years ago, means to stare intently and, and, and passionately, to really dig into it. If, if you're beholding something, you're examining it. And, and it's also an exclamation saying, look at God. Look at him closely. Stop looking around you. Look at God. Because he's the source of comfort. So he says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Look at him. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And the, the beautiful promise in 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And we see a wonderful characterization of God here. God Almighty, the tender shepherd. And we think, ah, how, can that, how can both of those be? It is. God Almighty, the tender shepherd. And these verses are a, a promise to those in exile, a promise to those in trial, saying God has not forgotten you. God is not impotent here. God is still working. Look to him. And he wants to be your shepherd. He wants to carry you, put his arms around you, love you, and lead you. Oh, what the people in exile needed to hear. And I would say, oh, what we need to hear. Right from the start, he's reminding the people of both his might and his care. And so many times in trials, we need to remember both of those things. Because those are the two things that I think are the source of most of our doubts in trials. Aren't they? God can't work or won't work. We're questioning his might or God doesn't care and isn't with me. We're questioning his care. And God says, no, I'm the mighty shepherd. I'm here. 
But the thing is, they weren't necessarily delivered from exile right when they read this. They read this for 70 years before they were delivered. But God is promising a future deliverance, a future that he is holding them in his hands, a future where there will be no more tears. So point number one, God will deliver. He will take comfort in the assurance that future deliverance is coming. And so this is a look forward. Then point number two in the majority of this text deals with, is God able to deliver? Okay, you say he will. Now, is he able? Can I trust him? So point number two is God is all able to deliver. I love making up my own words. All able is one of them. You can put a dash in it so that way it's grammatically correct. God is all able to deliver. The promises of comfort are guaranteed by the nature of the creator God. And I've got to say, this middle section is precious. As I've thought through through different things I've gone through in different times where I didn't know how God was working, there has to be an anchor. And the only anchor can be the, the promises of the nature of God. This has to be where we go back to. And this is where Isaiah takes the people of Judah back to. You're struggling. You're going through trials. Let's stop looking at the trials and behold our God and see who he is. And so for each of these, as we read through these, and he gives a number of characteristics of God, not all of them, but quite a list. Think of them in terms of trials. Think of them in terms of what I go through. How does this characteristic of God help? What is God trying to say? See, all of these things point to the glory of God. They're the weight of God. And, and when, we, when, we, when we struggle with trials, when we deny God, when we wonder where God is, we're really serving a weightless God because we haven't experienced the weight of who He is, the glory of who He is. Remember, glory means heavy. And, and so we want to do that. Start with verse 12. And, and I have six different things listed in your notes there. The first is Creator Yahweh's immense greatness. Creator Yahweh's immense greatness. And all of these things deal with Yahweh as creator and, and they deal with his ability to handle this world. And if he can handle this world, he can handle what you and I go through. And so verse 12 starts a lot like the end of Job when Job was wondering why in his trials. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. And in one verse, we see something that's typical of Hebrew poetry. You take extremes or you take differences and those diff- the, the two sides of an issue and, and you have water and you have heavens and you have dust and mountains and, and these, these serve to show an, an inclusiveness of everything. That God is in totality creator. His hand is over all things. In this verse, we see God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. We see his transcendence, that he is completely other, above the earth. We see his sovereignty, they're in his hand. Oh, what precious words of who our God is. Look at each phrase. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? And if you look at your hand, look at your palm for a minute and hold it, sort of cup it a little bit. That little circle is the hollow of your hand. And, and what, what Isaiah is saying here is, he, if you take all the waters of the earth, they fit in his hand. 
And I'm not going to use my water to do that, but I thought I'd use a little ball to do that. So it would be looking and saying, God is so other that all the waters, everything, the expanse of the ocean, the things that the ocean is one of the things that is hard to tame and ships are always going down, God just holds it in his hand. It's little. And so think about that in terms of our trials. If God holds all the water in the hollow of his hands and he holds us close to him, what comfort is there in that? You see the next phrase, he marked off the heavens with a span. And a span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and the distance of your pinky if you spread out your hand. And, you know, we do that in the night sky. We're like, ooh, in, in Orange County, we're like, a star. In, in the mountains, we're like, oh, wow, there's tons of stars. And God says in that hand, in that span, he sees all of the cosmos. Does that give you chills? The immense greatness and sovereignty of our God is on display. The next one, he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And it would be like if he had a measuring cup here. And no, Susie, I'm not going to put dirt in your measuring cup. (laughs) Probably wondered. And, And he took all of the dirt and all of the mountains and all of the stuff, not just of the earth, but of all planets. So here it is. In fact, it's, it's seven cups. Doesn't that show the greatness of God? That he can measure all of that? The fourth phrase. He's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. He knows to the gram or, or much more than that, to the milligram, whatever, he knows what every mountain weighs on this planet. A lot of you hike Whitney. Huh, he knows what that weighs. Has it in his measuring cup, no big deal. Because he is sovereign over all things. What's interesting to me is all of those are, are words of measurement or preciseness, showing that God precisely and intimately is connected with his creation. He precisely knows the weight. He can measure the, the, the dust. He's marked off the heavens. We have all these human measurements that are a cup or a teaspoon. Nothing compares to taking all of the cosmos and saying this is what that weighs. We should come away with a verse like this saying, wow, wow, God is awesome. We get excited about launching a payload into space. And hey, we get the rocket to land back on a ship. And to God, he's like, oh, how cute. That was easy. Are you getting a sense of God's immensity compared to us? Can God handle your trials? He's measured them all. He's intimately acquainted with every part of what is causing that. Don't doubt God's ability. See, God knows when we're in the middle of the storm. And this great God who holds the cosmos in his hand says, that's my son. That's my daughter. I love them. And I will take care of them. He knows when we're going through a lot. And this comes back to verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. 
The next two verses talk about Creator Yahweh's all-encompassing wisdom. So we have His power, His might, and now we come to, or His greatness, now we come to His wisdom. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult and, and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? And we have question after question after question. And, and the answer is, no, none of us have taught God how to be wise. None of us have informed God of something He didn't know. Even when we pray and come to God, surprise, you're not telling Him anything new. Because He is all-wise and all-knowing. He is omniscient. And listen to these words that speak of wisdom. Counsel, consult, understand, taught, knowledge, showed, understanding. And it's just piling on to give us the weight of God's wisdom. Matyer, who has studied Isaiah and has written several books on Isaiah, said this, Their force lies in their total impact, the unbounded, unsurpassed, underived wisdom of the Creator. The same God who is all-knowing, who we are overwhelmed with His wisdom, is the God that says, Comfort, comfort my people. We come to God... And sometimes we feel He doesn't understand our trials. He doesn't understand what we're going through. What man has shown Him counsel? Whom did God consult? Who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge? Showed Him the way of understanding? Creator Yahweh knows. He knows. The next attribute characteristic of God is in verses 15 to 17. Creator Yahweh's great sovereignty over mankind and our puny great nations. And we have the word behold again. Look intently. And I think this is here specifically for the people of Babylon because they're sitting under the rule of a nation that is a superpower, right? The the superpower of the world. Oh, there's no hope. And he says, behold, look at this closely, guys. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. You ever carried a a bucket along full of water? Just fill it all the way full and walk 100 yards. There's water splashing all over the place, right? Or you take a a pot from the sink and you accidentally fill it a little too full. You're trying to hold it real steady as you get to the stove. Uh, It it spills all over. He's saying, no, the nations are like a drop that just drops out. Uh, I love having my boys fill the trailer with water. And they're getting buckets or now we have a, a water jug and trying to pour it in. And and it's great when we get half of it in the trailer. We we spill. We (laughs) to God, the nations are just a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. And the imagery there is someone that's doing some fine measurements, and you want to make sure your your weight is right. So you lean down and you blow off the dust of the scales because it's nothing. God just blows off the nations that way. Behold, take notice of this. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The islands and the coastland, he can measure. He's over all these things. Verse 16 then goes to, what about spiritual and uh, spiritual things? And can we somehow affect God by being ultra spiritual, by coming to church enough, by reading our Bible enough, by serving enough? And in verse 16, he says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. 
And we may say, well, what does that mean? Lebanon was the forest, the, the, the country of forest and beautiful wood. And he's saying, even if you took every tree and cut it down, and every animal and sacrificed it to God, it's not enough because that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a heart devoted to Him, a heart that has turned to Him, not empty worship. Comes back to the nations in 17. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are counted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. There's all this debate about who is the superpower right now and what's going to happen to America as the leader of the free world. And ooh, ah, to God it's nothing. He doesn't, he's the leader. He's supreme. And we've got to understand the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God and, and how everything is in his hand for us to take comfort in trials. Because now my trial, man, God's got it. I don't have to know when it's going to end. He's going to take care of that. Now, he isn't saying man is nothing to him. We know that man is, are, are image bearers. They're the crown of his creation. But he's dealing with his greatness and the smallness of nations, the smallness of our efforts. We take comfort in Creator Yahweh's sovereignty over mankind and sovereignty over our puny nations. This is why I could stand before the elections and say, I'm not worried. And even after the elections, I'm not worried. And I know people were were devastated. People were jubilant. The nations are puny compared to our great God. That's who I choose to put my hope in and my trust in. Next one, 18 through 20, and this is the center point of the description of God. If you, if you look at it, there is none like Creator Yahweh. And it's talking about His deity and His holiness. There is none like Creator Yahweh. Jim talked about this a little bit in his prayer this morning. To whom then will you, li- will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? <laughs> a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. Or, or he who is too impoverished for an offering, he chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And God's sort of making fun of idols here again. And we, we've talked about that with wood and half of it for firewood, half of it for, for an idol. He's saying, you know, your glorious idols, guess what? Some craftsman made it. That, that's just out of the mind of man. And, and he's dealing with in this whole section, creator versus the created. And so he's making fun of idols. How can they be supreme above anything? They're not the creator. They're the created. And they're not even created by God. They're created by puny man. It's not an accident that he uses the word craftsman several times in this section because he's pointing out that idols were crafted by man. They are nothing. Yahweh alone is God. This is the center of the chapter. This is the center of our hope and our encouragement. It's the foundation for comfort. No other gods can compare. No other gods can challenge his plans. Verse 20 there, you want to try to get the best wood. You want to make it stable. Think about that. If an idol was a god, would you have to worry about making it stable? Would you have to worry about it rotting? No, that's what the maker worries about, not 
God. You know, last year at, at Living Nativity, not to scare anyone off from being a shepherd, but um, one of the nights our shepherds were going up into the nativity and the box we had them going up on was rotted through and it just collapsed. It wasn't stable. And the shepherd's leg went through and it was a nice, nice, really nice moment for the nativity. <laughs> we're fixing that this year, by the way. <laughs> because we're crafting something that will work. And he's saying... You're worshiping that box. Now for us, we don't have boxes, I I hope, in our house that we worship, but we worship all kinds of other things that we trust in trials, that we hope will get us through trials. See, anything that takes the place of trust in God, of love for God, and our first love, anything is an idol. And that might mean money. And that might mean relationships, even bad relationships. That might mean sex for some people, that that's their God and that's their way of trying to deal. It might mean drugs or drinking. It might mean wanting to get ahead and being being so energetic at work that I'm going to be powerful and I'm going to take over the boss's position. All kinds of things we use to feel good about ourselves and replace God Almighty. He alone is God. Entertainment, position at work, money, relationships, the best toys, those are all part of the created, not the creator. They all fall short. They all make really lousy gods because they rot and decay and let us down. So many times we struggle with trials because we're relying on things that let us down. My spouse needs to take care of this for me. They need to meet all my needs. Don't put that on them. Only God can. We need to keep moving. Oh, this is such a beautiful passage. 21 through 25 talk about Creator Yahweh is Lord and King of all creation. He is Lord and King of all creation. It deals with His Lordship, His dominance, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Implied when you read that should be, you should know. Don't you know by now? Has has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings peace princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root on the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble or chaff. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, the one and only God. And he's showing that he is over creation, but he's also controlling creation. He is over every part of your trial. He's over your boss. He's over your doctor. He's over your landlord. He's over your spouse. And and, and we get to that, and and he's over a government who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And that word for emptiness is the same word that's in Genesis 1-2. And the the earth was formless and void, empty. One of the fun ways I remember that, the the Hebrew word for that is tohu. So I think of tofu. 
empty of taste, <laughs> nutrition. No, sorry, I'm sorry, some of you are tofu eaters. In Hebrew, I just had to use these tricks to remember words. <laughs> some of you are going to use that. <laughs> it's empty. It's void. The best this world has to offer is empty and void because God is Lord and King. Amen? Amen. You know, what's the source of your trial? God is Lord over that. Nothing compares to him. Last point in the character of God. Creator Yahweh maintains maintains creation and strength. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And then he's, he's using active words here. God is not a deist God that just puts it in motion and, oh, see you later. He says, he, he who brings out their host by number, calls them off by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do we still have stars? Why aren't they all colliding and creating supernovas and destroying cosmos? Because God is, is controlling them. Because God is maintaining creation. He is not a far-off God. And if He can manage the orbits and movements of the cosmos, He can direct us. He can sustain us, even through our trials. Six descriptions of God that I think are extremely pertinent to our struggles. And we get to the last four or five verses, and we see, okay, God will deliver in the future. He's able, but what about now? And these four or five verses deal with the now. Read verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And the first thing that that Isaiah deals with here is never think that God has forgotten you. Never think that. Never doubt his constant knowledge and care and ability for your situation. He is our eternal, sustaining creator God. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's applying the character of God to our problems in these four verses. It's sort of nice when the text gives you the application. He's saying, what difference does that make about God? Here, never think that he's forgotten you. See, in verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord. The idea is, well, maybe I've gone a direction that doesn't allow God to be with me anymore. You can see children of Israel thinking that. Even if you're in your trial because of sin, repentance and coming to God, he will be there and he will help you through that. The second phrase there, and my right is disregarded by my God. The idea of being abandoned by God or forgotten by God. And then he says, don't you know God is everlasting. He's created everything. He's not too tired to care. He's he's not ignorant of what's going on. He loves you. Never think that He's forgotten you. Next two verses, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And Isaiah is reminding us that God gives strength for every situation. He gives strength for every situation. This doesn't mean the situations go away. In this world, you will have many troubles, Jesus said. But he says he's going to give you the strength to go through it. He gives power to the faint. And to him with no might, he increases strength. Do you feel today, and maybe, maybe you're going through the trial today, this week, 
And you're like, I'm done. I have no more energy. That creator God says, let me give you some for today. And I'll give you more tomorrow. And I'll give you more tomorrow. The word for weary in verse 30 is precious. It's this idea of exhaustion because of the hardship of life. Even youths, even, even those of you who are young and powerful and, and nothing can go wrong, even you will get weary and experience the hardship of the life and be exhausted. But God knows. If He can hold up the stars, He can hold you up. And finally, verse 31, it's the verse to memorize out of the week. But they who wait for the Lord, and the idea of wait is a confident expectation, a hope. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And if you're sitting in Babylon in 70 years of exile wondering where is your God, that is beautiful. Or if you're sitting today wondering if you're going to have a job next week, that's beautiful. Or wondering if another loved one is going to pass away this year or if I'm going to be well next year. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And, and they won't just survive. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They're going to thrive. He's going to use them. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. And so that third point is waiting on Yahweh allows us to not just survive, but to thrive through the storm. See, God doesn't promise to take the storm away. He promises future deliverance. But He says, I will help you through it. And not just to... to, to moan our way through it, but I will help you rise above it and give glory to God. But you have to wait on me. Trust me in the middle of difficulty. Continue serving and doing. See, we respond to this description of God with new strength to live for God. Incredible passage. God gives hope for the future because He cares. God is able because he is God Almighty and our shepherd. And God cares about us now, today, and will give us strength through this. This passage is ultimately fulfilled when he sends Christ. When he sends the Messiah to wipe away our sin if we come to him, to pay for our sin, to ensure a future and a new heaven and a new earth where these trials are gone. We know that Jesus, when he he goes to heaven, he sends the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with us through every trial, through every moment. God is great. I want to end with a statement at the end. Our Creator God never lacks the strength, energy, and wisdom to care for and renew His people. If I had to summarize the chapter, that's it. Our Creator God never lacks the strength, energy, and wisdom to care for and renew His people. And I'd like to respond in two ways today. We're going to respond in communion here in a moment that that celebrates what Christ did and the salvation that He brought. But on your sheet of paper, you see a a scale there, old-fashioned scale. Most of you don't have that anymore. And and I'd like you to, to do this in your mind. If you have a pen, you can do it on one side. Write any trials you're going through of the scale. Just write, you know, maybe it's, it's health issues. Maybe it's money issues. Maybe it's relational issues. Just write that down. And on the other side, start to list all the things out of the chapter that are characteristics of God. 
and just see which side is heavier. And it brings our trials into perspective. I'm excited about what God is going to do with your trials this next year. Because we are going to see Creator God, Almighty, All-Knowing, All-Sovereign. We are going to see Him work at Village. And we're going to see Him work in our lives, and you're going to see Him work in your life if we turn to Him and trust Him. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness, for hope, for being a God who is not far off, but is with us in every trial, giving us strength for every day, and hope for what is coming. Thank you for your word, God, in Jesus' name.